Uh, I'll invite you now to stand with me as we turn to Genesis chapter 44 this morning. Uh, We're going to look at the entire chapter, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 13, which is the introduction, kind of sets the scene for what's happening between Joseph and his brothers, and then skip down and read verse 33, which I think is the key verse for us to understand why this is happening here uh, in the book of Genesis. This is the word of the Lord, starting at the beginning of that chapter. Then he commanded the steward of his house, he is Joseph there, fill the men's sacks, the the men is his brothers, fill their sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, what does my Lord speak with words as these? Far be it from your servant to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks were brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, and beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now verse 33. Now therefore, this is... This is Judah speaking to Joseph. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Let's pray together. Fathers, we open your word and come to it now recognizing that this is your truth written for us. While this narrative takes place long ago in a a foreign land with customs that are so different from our own, we confess, God, that this is your truth. Written not only for its original hearers, but even for your church today. I pray, God, that as we see a change in the life of Judah, son of Jacob, brother of Joseph, that we would see a pattern that all are called to of recognizing sin. And we would see a great foreshadowing of sacrifice by one to come in the line of Judah. We pray, God, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. For those that may be new with us for the first time today, we are in a year-long series in the book of Genesis, quickly approaching the end. There there are only a handful of sermons left here in this book. And for the last several weeks, we have been considering these these final uh, chapters, which look at the story of Joseph. 
sold into slavery by his brothers, both rising to prominence, falling into the pit, and then rising to prominence again. And over the last couple of weeks, direct interaction between Joseph and his brothers as they have come to Egypt for grain, returned home, and now returned again. And last week saw the great mercy of God expressed to them through the actions of Joseph. Their lives seem, it would, because these brothers do not know, these sons of Jacob do not know that Joseph is their brother, but they get this special attention. It seems as if their lives are intertwined. But surely at this rate, there is great suspicion that has risen. As I was preparing this text this week, a song came to my mind. Now, I know some of you don't like it when I talk about rock and roll, but I'm going to, okay? In 1969, Elvis Presley released what would become his final number one hit, Suspicious Minds. As I say this, some of you are already singing it in your mind, right? Caught in a trap. <laughs> we can't walk out. Surely, if that song had been recorded in ancient times, it would have been what was going through the minds of Joseph's brothers. <laughs> Why are we constantly drawn back into this man's sphere of influence? Surely there were thousands, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of people that had come to Egypt to buy grain. We have been told that the whole world, meaning the known world, those who were within the sphere of influence of Egypt, had come to Egypt to buy grain, that it was through the plan of God revealed to Pharaoh in a dream that Joseph had interpreted that the whole world had been saved during this great famine. And yet these 10 the first time and now 11 brothers seem like they are caught in a constant trap by the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Not knowing. Why? Why were they welcomed at his table? Why were their younger brother, why was their younger brother lavished upon during that dinner? Why in the previous event had their money been placed back in the mouth of their sack and now again must be relieved to leave Egypt with the brother that they had left previously into all 11, restored with grain as much as their donkeys could carry, leaving caught in a trap. <laughs> Surely there is in the back of their mind some level of suspicion, but do you know what they do not do? They don't check the bags before they leave. Why they don't check the bags before they leave, I can't tell you. I think, I seem to think I am suspicious of enough of a person that I would have checked because the last time their money had been returned to them. But maybe it was the great mercy in Genesis 43 that Joseph shows them by inviting them into their table and by restoring their brother to them and by lavishing this, this great provision upon them. They just think it's time to go and, and there's no more suspicious, suspicious activity, but there is. And Joseph is for one final time going to test his brothers. And so as we have already read, he sets a trap for them. He, he lavishes them with all the grain that they could carry. And he also, as he had done the previous time, instructs his steward to return their money, their silver 
to them, put it in the mouth of their sack, put it on their grain. So what now the second time, what they have paid for their, for the uh, grain that they are receiving, they are now going to be reimbursed, but something else happens. A silver cup is also placed in Benjamin's sack. The one who had received five times the portion in the previous chapter, the one who is the blood brother, both mother and father of Joseph, unknowingly now has Joseph's silver cup placed in his sack. And the boy and the, the brothers go off early in the morning. Heavy laden donkeys in tow, returning to Canaan, going back to Jacob with their previous brother who had been held in place, restored to them. And Joseph sends his steward again shortly after they get out of town to go and to find them and to ask this question, why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you taken this cup? And you'll notice, even though I don't think it is very important to the story, I think the fact that it's a silver cup is important to the story, but what the, the professed use of the cup is not super important to the story, but maybe it's a question you would have that both the, Joseph says it is, it's the cup by which uh, my Lord practices divination. He tells his stewards to tell them that. And even later in the text, he, Joseph is going to point this out to his brothers you may wonder, is this something that Joseph has done? Has he embraced this, this Egyptian practice of, of divination, the reason that it would have been in a silver cup, the way that Egyptians would try to tell the future is they would put some form of liquid wine, something in the cup, and they would pour some type of oil in it, almost like reading the tea leaves. They would watch and see the motion of the liquid within the cup and attempt to tell the future. The reference to practice of divination is most likely only a part of the ruse because since Genesis 37, Joseph has been portrayed as the purest person in all of the Genesis narrative. From chapter one through 50, Joseph stands alone as being the only one never accused of any sin in his life. Not that he was sinless, but Moses, as he writes this for us, paints for us a picture of Joseph of one who it follows the Lord always. And divination was anathema in Israel. It was forbidden within the law. Now, no, the law has not been given yet, but Joseph has been one painted for us as one who would have kept the law even before it was given. So likely, Joseph did not use this cup truly for divination. But this is part of the ruse. It, it's, it's part of the, the plot and the plan because you've now stolen something that is very important to the second most important man in all of Egypt. And then the brothers forcefully deny this. They force, so forcefully deny this that they protest the accusation even to the point of death. They say, why, why would you speak such words as these in verse 7? They even say, they appeal to the previous event and they say, this has already happened to us. I cannot believe this is happening again. Why are you being suspicious of us again? Why, why do we feel like this is deja vu all over again? We, we returned the money. Why would we steal it a second time? Even to the point of saying, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we will all be my Lord's servants. Now let's be clear about what they're saying here. These 11 brothers are saying, we are so confident that we did not steal anything. That the one who is found with this cup is dead. 
and the other 10 will be slaves in Egypt. That's what they're committing to. This is how forcefully they are denying the accusation. And then the trap is sprung and the brothers are caught in it. Notice that they go so far as to say death. In verse 10, the servant says, no, that's not what will happen. But whoever it is that is found to be in possession of the cup, he shall be my slave. He shall become a a slave in a servant, a slave in Egypt. The rest shall be innocent and be allowed to go. And so they all lower their sacks and one by one, starting with the oldest, building in anticipation. You can see how Hollywood would paint this, right? The music is building up as, as it gets to Benjamin's sack and finally there it is. And what is their response in verse 13? They tear their clothes, every man loaded his donkey and they return to the city. You can get this sense of rock bottom in the lives of the sons of Jacob. And I think this is what the narrator wants us to see, that, that this is the end. They have freely offered, if you find this cup in one of our sacks, you can kill the one who took it and the rest will become slaves. And whose bag is it found in? Benjamin, the youngest brother of Jacob, the one who Jacob did not want to send to Egypt, who did not make the first trip, the one who... who argues with his sons before their return about sending Benjamin, who two different sons of Jacob have promised, we will return your son to you. And now Benjamin is as good as dead to them. Either their word will be kept and he will be killed and the rest enslaved, or the steward's word will be kept and they will be set free, but they will not be returning with Benjamin. The only one it did not need to be is who it was. Any of these other brothers may be seen as expendable in the eyes of Jacob, but not Benjamin. Benjamin was the one he did not want to send. Benjamin was the one who they had to promise they would return. It would be the loss of Benjamin that would ultimately kill Jacob in their eyes. And we will see that as Judah speaks here in a moment. This is their comeuppance. This final trap has caught them and these brothers have now torn their clothes, reloaded their donkeys and are returning Egypt, they believe for the final time to see the death of their brother and to be enslaved. I cannot stress this point enough. We must see this as as rock bottom for these brothers. But as we progress through the rest of the chapter, here's what we see. We see the focus go from 11 brothers and Joseph. Even though Benjamin is going to remain kind of at the center of the conversation, he never speaks. Neither do the other brothers. The the focus goes from these 11 brothers with Joseph down to one brother, Judah. Not the oldest, the fourth but he will represent his brothers before Joseph. And in many ways, this, is, this focus on Judah tells us why this chapter is here. It tells us what we are supposed to see, that our mind's eye should go directly to Judah. 
and see what the Lord is doing in him through this rock-bottom experience in Egypt. And Judah recognizes the brother's great sin and guilt before Joseph. So here they are returned. It's not been long. They were barely out of the city. And we pick up in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. It had not been long, right? They fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you, know, uh, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Again, I think that's just part of the ruse. He's saying, don't you know I would have found you out? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or can we clear ourselves? Notice this. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. So here's what Judah offers. Judah offers the same thing they had offered to the servant. Hold us all equally guilty. And Joseph echoes the same words of his servant and says, no, only the man whose cup was, whose hand the cup was found to be in. It would only be Benjamin that he would hold. So why is this important? Why doesn't, why doesn't Judah agree with what the, what the, the, the uh, steward of Joseph had already offered? Why does he again offer collective guilt? Judah has finally recognized something. He has finally recognized the sin and guilt brought about by godly conviction and grief in his life. Judah has finally recognized how wrong they were. And while the cup was not found in his sack, while it would have only been Benjamin's responsibility, both at the word of the steward and at the word of Joseph himself, Judah knows something. Verse 16 is key. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now, Judah is not talking about the guilt of stealing the money the first time because they didn't do it. And he's not talking about the guilt of stealing the money the second time because they didn't do it. And he's not talking about stealing the cup either because they collectively would not have been guilty for that. Even if Benjamin himself had taken it, they would have not have been guilty. So what is the guilt that God has found out? What is Judah crediting the Lord for finally revealing in his life? It is the guilt of selling Joseph into slavery all those years before. And it matters that this is Judah here. While all of the brothers have returned, this one focus is only on him because he is the one who would receive the greatest blessing from Jacob. When we get to Genesis 49, Jacob is going to bless all of his sons. Well, we say that he's going to bless him because that's what the text says, but the first three don't receive a blessing at all. The three older brothers, because of their sin and anger, aren't blessed in Genesis 49, it is only Judah who will be blessed amongst the oldest of Jacob's sons. While still sinful, he obviously here experiences some type of life change that we've actually seen progressed from previous chapters. So let's just look at, see Judah's guilt as it's progressed through here in 
the narrative of Genesis. All the way back in Genesis 37, Judah's brothers have, or Joseph's brothers have thrown him into a pit. They've actually sought to kill him. And Judah comes up with a bright idea. He says, what profit is it if we kill our brothers and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let us, let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh and his brothers listened to him. So it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery. You may say, well, that sounds a lot nicer than kill him, right? At least Judah's somewhat redeemable here because he said, let's sell him, let's not kill him. But what was the ultimate what, would, what was his ultimate goal? His ultimate goal was not the preservation of his brother's life because he really knew that to sell someone into slavery in Egypt was as good as a death sentence anyway. What was his goal? His goal was to gain. He says, what profit is it if we kill our brothers? So what's Judah interested in? In Genesis 37, Judah is interested in profit. And then we get to Genesis chapter 38, which seems to be this little aside moment that only focuses on the life of Judah has nothing to do with Joseph who has been introduced as the main character in Genesis 37 of this section of the book. So why is Genesis 38 there? If you'll remember back several weeks when we were in that sermon, there was this conflict between Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar and we see great sin on behalf of Judah. And he begins to recognize that sin at the end of that story in verse 26. He says, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. So Judah was the one who comes up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah's also the one who failed to care for his daughter-in-law like he should have. We fast forward to Genesis 42 and we see this collective recognition of guilt. Verse 21, then they said to one another, so Judah's a part of this conversation. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered to another brother, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You say, well, what's the difference between what Reuben says in Genesis 42 and what Judah says in Genesis 44? Do we really see progression? Absolutely we do. Because the recognition of Reuben and his brothers, because they were all discussing this in, in verse 21, is that we are somehow in a worldly sense guilty of our brother's blood. But Judah recognizes something completely different by the time we get to Genesis 44. Now Judah sees that it is God who has brought him to this point. Judah sees himself as totally helpless and unable to control the situation. He is completely and totally at the mercy of Joseph because God has brought him there. God has, Judah says in verse 16, found out the guilt of your servants. It is not some type of blood debt that is some type of worldly blood debt that is owed. It is the Lord himself who has revealed to Judah his great sinfulness. And it is the Lord who's gonna to reveal to Judah as he recognizes the dire nature of their situation, that their sin now has great consequences. And this is what Judah's gonna do from verse 18 through 31. You're gonna notice the number of times he says the word, your servant. He is prostrating himself before Joseph. He is begging for Joseph to offer him mercy. Let's read this together. He says, then 
starting in verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father and an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he is alone, is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring, me, uh, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down to you, you shall not see my face again. When he went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is with us, he will die. And your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant and father with sorrow to Sheol. Do you notice the number of times he refers to himself, his brothers, and even his father as your servant, prostrating himself before Joseph? Do you notice the number of times he, he refers to Joseph as my Lord or our Lord? He is recognizing that he is at the mercy of Joseph. How little does he know who this man truly is? And at this point, it doesn't matter. In the next chapter, next week, we'll look at it. He's going to find out who he is. They're going to see the great mercy of their brother and the trust their brother had in the Lord. But what's important for us to see today is this change that's happening in the life of Judah. Judah can't control this situation. Judah has been brought to rock bottom by the Lord himself and it is the Lord that he has ultimately, he and his brothers have ultimately sinned against and the dire consequences of this situation is this. There is no hope. And it's ultimately going to lead to the death of our brother. Here's what Judah recognizes. In, in simple terms, Judah recognizes I've sinned and my sin has great consequences. This is, this is what we need to see here. I've sinned and my sin has great consequences. In many ways, the, re the reaction of Judah to this final test that Joseph puts his brothers through is a picture that all of us must truly walk in. We must all become Judah one day, recognizing our great sin and the consequences of it. But Judah does not stop talking at verse 31. There is an even greater picture that the scriptures show us here in the words of Judah as he offers to substitute himself in the place of Benjamin. He continues, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to bring my father. Now just stop there. In the previous chapter, Judah has told his father, it is on my life that I will bring your brother back. And he said this, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. 
Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Here's what we see in this life change of Judah. He's no longer focused on himself. He's willing to substitute himself in the place of Benjamin to ease the consequences of his sin on his father. Judah is willing to give his own life for the sake of his brothers and his promise to his father. Jesus in John chapter 15 said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That's demonstrated here in the life of Judah. He is willing to say, I will stay. I'll take the consequences. If it's slavery and enslavement here in Egypt for the rest of my life, then so be it. Ultimately, if the penalty for stealing this silver cup is death, then I will take it. Judah's transformation serves as a great example to us and a foreshadowing of an even greater sacrifice. You see, this final test that Joseph gives is really a test that takes us all the way back to Genesis 37. Because in Genesis 37, it was for a few pieces of silver that they were willing to sell their brother. And here in Genesis 44, it is a silver cup and some silver coins found in a bag. And what will Judah do? Will Judah seek again to profit? Or will Judah be the sacrifice? Has there really been a change in the life in Judah? This transformation that we saw at first in his conflict with Tamar, what happens now? And Judah answers the call, having been brought low by the Lord, recognizing his own sin before the Lord, now demonstrates to us great sacrifice. Take me instead of the boy. So what? From this story, I have two questions for us that I believe every man, woman, and boy and girl in this room should answer today. Having read this text, what should we believe? What should we do? How should we evaluate our own lives first? Have I recognized my own great sin and guilt before the Lord? It took Judah some time. We can't even know for certain that all of his brothers ended up in the same place that he ended up, but we do know where Judah ends up. We know it here because of his willingness to sacrifice himself in the place of Benjamin, and we know it later by the professed words of his father, giving him the blessing over his three older brothers. That life change has happened. We now have a new Judah. He is a different person, and it began here, a recognition of great sin and guilt not simply because he sinned against his brother, but because he sinned against the Lord. And know this, if you are to be right with God, it will begin in the same place. It cannot begin anywhere else. It's not possible for it to begin anywhere else. See, if we're to come to the Lord and to be in right relationship with him, if we're to have a transformed life, it must begin in one place for every single person. And that is a recognition of our own great sin and guilt. Now, we may not have ever sold our brother into Egyptian slavery. We may not have ever treated a daughter-in-law like Judah did Tamar. But we still, too, are guilty of our own sin before the Lord. 
in his first letter to the churches, the apostle John introduces his idea of walking in the light and walking in the love of God by saying this. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And I just stop for a moment and see this. John is painting this picture of us, of God and of humanity, that God is pure light and that there's, there's no shadow within God, that there's no darkness within him at all. And so he says this in verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, church, what we need to understand is that we cannot walk in the light without having first recognized that we were born in the darkness. For a long, long time, the sons of Jacob deceived themselves into believing that what they had done was not wrong. That selling Joseph into slavery had benefited them not only by the personal gain of the silver that they received from the slave traders, but by elevating their place in their father's eyes. But finally, at least one of them recognized his great sin before the Lord. He recognized to walk with God is to reject the darkness. And to not recognize your sin is to call God a liar. So here's what I wonder today. Maybe you're here and you've just always thought about yourself as being a pretty good person. And, and listen, our world wants you to believe that. The enemy of, of the church wants you to believe that. Here's what the enemy wants you to believe, that you're just relatively okay. You've done all right. You're pretty nice to people. You treat your family all right. You don't steal at your job. You're kind to your neighbors. You do things that seem as if they're all right. You look back in your life and you say, I've not done nearly the things that these brothers did to Joseph. So maybe I'm not in the darkness at all. Until you recognize that you were born in the darkness and need God's help to bring you into the light, you will never be in right relationship with him. It is only through a starting point of recognition of our sin and the guilt that we bear for that, that we can come to the Lord. Just as Judah recognizes here, I am guilty before the Lord and that guilt has great consequences. We too must recognize the same thing. Every one of us are guilty before the Lord and that guilt has great consequences. And we can bear those consequences through an eternal separation from God in his judgment for the rest of eternity. Or that wrath of God could go somewhere else. And that's what the second part of Judah's testimony provides for us. As Judah says, I'm willing to step into place of my brother. He foreshadows Jesus, the lion of Judah who becomes the sacrificial lamb of God. So my question, a second question is this, do you trust in that for the forgiveness of your sin? You see, Jesus, centuries later, 
born in the line of Judah. Judah is the largest of the sons of Jacob as it relates to progeny. They get the They become the largest people group. Ultimately, they become the last remaining nation there in Israel. It is through Judah that kings would arise, kings like David and Solomon, ultimately leading us to Jesus, the Lion of Judah. But John also, who wrote 1 John, also received vision from the Lord to write the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is this series of visions showing us the majesty of Jesus showing us how Jesus overcomes the world. And notice this in Revelation chapter five. Watch what John, watch what John sees here. He says, then I saw the, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more and behold, watch this, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now we're gonna be, we're gonna, all right, so he's the lion of Judah. How did he conquer? Look at verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, with all or seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and shall, and they shall reign on the earth. It is the lion of Judah who will ultimately lay down his life as the lamb of God. The picture of substitution in Genesis 44 foreshadows the greatest substitutionary act to ever take place the ruling lion, the son of God, who became the sacrificial lamb in order to ransom a people for God. So we mirror Judah in the recognition of our sin while we recognize that Judah foreshadowed Jesus who died in our place so that we would not have to take the wrath of God. But it went upon the lion of Judah who became the lamb of God. So I want to know today, have you trusted in that? Because if you're trusting in your own works to please God and trusting in what you do in this life to somehow be right with God, you will fail. Hear me, my friend. You'll fail because to claim to walk in the light while still walking in the darkness seeks to make God a liar. And God is not a liar but he calls you to the light today. And he made a way for you to come into the light today by the lion of Judah laying down his life as a lamb so that he may ransom a people for God. This is what he has done for you today. So recognize your sin and come to him, faith and repentance. 
Believing that he has made a way, that he has substituted himself in your place so that you and I might live in the light as those who have had transformed lives as we see here in the life of Judah. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, that you don't expect us to do it on our own, but that you bring us low, even to the rock bottom, so that we'll recognize our sin, run towards you, who is the lion of Judah and the sacrificial lamb of God. Lord, let us not lose those two pictures. (laughs) That, That Jesus Christ is both ruling and reigning. The King of kings and the Lord of lords over all creation itself. But also, is the same one who gave of himself fully and completely, dying in our place so that we might be brought into relationship with you. Thank you for that. May people believe that today unto salvation we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a clear invitation for you. If you've never recognized your own sin and called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, believing that Jesus died in your place, today is the day for you to do that. You could do that right now where you sit. There's no special action that's required. You call on the Lord. You tell him that you're a sinner. You recognize exactly what Judah recognized and you believe in him and he will save you of your sin. Then all I'd invite you to do is this. Come find me in the lobby. One of our other pastors will be out there. I'd love to talk with you and help you know how you can follow in obedience in him, living your life now, not on your own, but for the one who gave himself for you. For all of us, we respond by worshiping our Lord who has made this path for us through the blood of Jesus Christ.